Hey guys, welcome to episode one of the Science Centric Podcast. Yes, you heard that correctly. Even though we've produced 21 episodes thus far, we're kicking it old school and reposting our very first episode from the fall of 2018, which after the events of the past year, seems like a really, really, really long time ago. The reason we're posting an older episode is that I'm working on a new series for the Science Centric YouTube channel, and we had to put the podcast on hold for a bit. We'll be back soon enough though, so until then, I thought you might enjoy hearing our very first episode with the wonderful science and environmental journalist, Rachel Neuer. But before we get into it, just a few quick reminders. One, rate our podcast and write us a review on whichever platform you're listening on. Two, find out how you can support our work by going to sciencecentric.com support. Okay, enough of that. Let's get on with episode number one. In this episode, I'm pleased to have as my guest award-winning journalist Rachel Neuer. Rachel has written for just about all the major players in science journalism, The New York Times, National Geographic, Wired, Scientific American, etc., etc. And she's covered everything from semiconductors to pierogies to autism. But the subject she's covered the most, her raison d'etre, if you will, is the illegal wildlife trade. This is also the topic of her brand new book, Poached, Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking, which just came out yesterday. On a rainy Thursday afternoon in Brooklyn, I spoke with Rachel about the process of writing her book and what can be done to stop the illegal wildlife trade, particularly in Asia. Rachel Neuer, welcome to the Science-Centric Podcast, the first podcast in the upcoming series, which hopefully goes on for a very long time. Forever and ever. <laughs> so one really uh, cool thing about this is that you were my last guest on the previous podcast that, that I hosted, and now you're my first guest on this podcast. So. It's a beautiful symmetry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and the reason that I thought it would be great to have you on this podcast is you have a new book um, coming out uh, September 25th. Yes, September 25th in North America, October 10th in the rest of the English-speaking world. Yes, and the book is called Poached Inside the the Dark Dark World World of of Wildlife Trafficking. trafficking. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, So, I guess to start, um, you know, what what was the origin of this book? Um, Why did you... I mean, there's this, this subject has actually been covered quite a bit. There's quite a few For sure. books out there like this. So what made you want to write this book? And I guess maybe what, what's different about this than other uh, books about wildlife trafficking? Great question. Um, yeah. I guess it depends on how far back you want to go with this origin story. I grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, so I was surrounded by... Uh, woods in my backyard, bayous and beaches a mile away, barrier islands, all kinds of cool nature. Uh, My house was also the kind of nexus of any stray or hurt animal, whether like a squirrel or an iguana or a kitten that people would find. Mm -hmm. So I I loved animals. I grew up with animals and wildlife. Um, I thought I wanted to be a scientist. So I studied biology and then I went on to an under or a master's degree in ecology which took me to Vietnam Mm -hmm. for my research. And I was investigating some illegal wildlife trade stuff in a couple national parks um, in this really boggy, peat swampy area called U Minh. 
And um, while I was there, I heard about Vietnam's last Javan rhino being oh, right. killed for its horn. And I was just like, what? Like, how, how could that even happen? Like, your last rhino and now it's dead? And like, why? Ah. Yeah. And um, meanwhile, there are all these media stories building about um, uh, African rhinos being poached for their horns, about elephants being killed for their tusks. But it wasn't like a big thing at this time. This is 2009, 2010. It was just kind of building. Uh, meanwhile, while all this global news was transpiring, I was realizing that I really didn't like science. Mm -hmm. I wasn't good at it. Um, yeah. It was like nitpicky details and I hated statistics. I do love writing though and I still loved science. So science journalism was the solution for me. Um, I moved to New York to do a program in science journalism. Yeah. And, which uh, I know well. Yeah. <laughs> which brought us together yes. on this fine afternoon. <laughs> and, so uh, yeah, we're, we're both graduates of the SHIRT program yes. at NYU. Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting yes. Program. Yes, It's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, yes. <laughs> exactly. So uh, when I went to SHIRP, I already knew that I was interested in poaching and illegal wildlife trade. You know, I had seen this small slice of it in Vietnam, just on a very local level. I had seen it in the news. And for many of my assignments at NYU, I was writing about it. And Again, at this time, like everybody knows about it now, but people back then did not really, it wasn't on people's radar as much. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you just mean in the, in sort of, in the popular press? Yeah, or? in the popular press. Like yeah. if you look back, there were a few stories here and there, but you know, it was like, oh, some elephants got poached in Kenya, moving on. It wasn't, I guess people in the field were realizing it was becoming this giant threat once again like it was in the 70s and 80s but mm -hmm. um the public it was still just kind of this faint whispering yeah um but yeah i mean i graduated from sherp in 2011 and i immediately wanted to write this book but yeah. you know i'm a new journalist i didn't know what i was doing uh i even put a proposal together sent it out and agents and editors were like no this is way too depressing no one's going to want to read this book oh, wow. so i was like okay i guess they're professionals they know what they're talking about they must be right yeah so i kind of gave up on the idea but meanwhile this crisis has just been building and building and now you know pretty much anyone who reads a newspaper or um, follows online news should have some awareness that this is this is happening in africa and asia yeah yeah, so with this book, how is it different? There's... Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, um, I mean, so this book is basically like eight years in the making. Yeah, I mean, and how long good did it God, take even you to, longer. How like, long did it if, take you to write it? So... Like report, report uh, Right, writing. yeah. Um, well, like I said, I had kind of given up on it. Well, I had given up on it. Yeah. And then... Um, one of my mentors, who you know, Dan Fagan, yes. his book agent uh, came back from this trip to Kenya and she came back to New York and somehow in Kenya, her eyes had been open to this problem. And she's like, I discovered this thing. I have to find someone to write about it. Like we have to tell the world <laughs> and save the animals. Right. And she was talking to Dan about this and Dan's like, huh, I know somebody who could yeah. do that. Um, so he set up a meeting with us and even then I was kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to deal with this. This sounds like kind of a black hole for time and money. But I also realized this is my, my chance to finally realize this dream and give it a shot and get word out. Yeah. 
So as um, sorry to interrupt, but you were talking mm. about you know how this book is different different, different than yeah. other book other yeah. journalists that have right, covered right, this. Right. And I, I will say I will say that my my thought on that and and how it's different is. Um, it's the voice that you have through this book and the stories that you tell and the people that we meet along the way. Um, I just found it so interesting and you just get involved in these pe people's stories. Yeah, I mean, I love animals, but to be honest, I don't want to read a book about like animals for 300 pages, <laughs> you know, like it's human stories that humans find compelling. And yeah. I, I know that as well as anybody else. So, um, well, First of all, how is it different? There's all these news stories out there. They're really scattershot. They're freaking depressing. They're just like all these animals are getting killed. I felt like what was missing in that conversation was context. Like how is this entire global contraband industry linked together? And what are the overall impacts? What is driving the demand? And what is being done to stop it? Mm -hmm. And there are books out there that have done that but again i felt like they they approached it from this very academic very dry here are the facts yeah way and it's just kind of overwhelming and sad to yeah. read those books <laughs> they're great but um and you just see a lot of statistics yeah and you, like and this many animals are dead blah 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 yeah and it, and and your book definitely has that i mean you obviously have to share the data to yeah, sort for of sure. show the bigger picture but then you have this yeah very, very um intimate view of people involved in it yeah us. i mean well from the beginning i was like i have to find a way to make it not just sad and i also needed a way to link together these seemingly disparate things like rhino horn in vietnam and lizards in indonesia and burning ivory in kenya uh, and I thought, okay, maybe I can find like a character, but there's just not one person who's involved in all this because it's such a big convoluted thing. Right. And then I was like, well, um, I guess I could be the character, which is very <laughs> uncomfortable for me as a journalist. I hate that. Right. But it was just like, this is a way to make it compelling, to make it one voice throughout the book and to kind of take readers along on this journey of discovery that I undertook myself. Yeah. And also just to kind of make things lighter and funnier because a lot of this, I'm just kind of, I felt like I was stumbling around in the dark trying to make things happen and then like, oh, something would like pop up, like illegal like pangolin scales in a market in China. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I wanted to convey that sense that I don't really know what I'm doing either. I'm just, we're all along on this journey and this ride together. Yeah. Um and and I think I think you did that well, um, if I if I say so myself. Oh, thank you. But you you inserted yourself into the story, but it's almost more like your reactions to things. You know, you're not you're not like I did this, and it, you know, I saved the day, and you know, <laughs> yeah, it's I like did it was save the day. <laughs> <laughs> but it was more like um, some of your your very. Uh, you know, your comments on like what people are wearing or, you know, how they're interacting with each other and stuff like that. It's a bit snarky in places, but I actually yeah. really enjoy that because that's like, uh, you know, maybe because we come from the same sort of, um, you know, sort of group of people or viewpoint because of, of similar experience. But I, I was like, yeah, that's how I, that's exactly what it's exactly. coming I mean, through my mind. Yeah, a lot of it was just trying to keep like a straight face and roll with the punches. Like, okay, yeah, the illegal <laughs> rhino horn user, of course he brought his rhino horn to a busy restaurant 
in an Oreo cookie tin. Yeah. Like, okay, that's what's happening now. <laughs> For sure. Yes, yeah, bizarre. And also bizarre how some of these people who are intimately involved in the illegal wildlife trade seem so open and willing to talk with a journalist about what they're doing. For sure, and that was like a very sad realization for me actually because they're so open because they don't have to care because there's no enforcement or um, sort of viewpoint over there that, or big viewpoint that this is quote unquote wrong. Like here we, in the West, we're, we value animals generally speaking. Um, if you wear ivory, you're probably gonna catch some shit from your friends, right. I would expect. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even if you wear fur. Um, but yeah. that zeitgeist has not taken hold in the way it has here in the East. It's just a different approach to wildlife. Yeah, um, so just an uh, interesting personal story about that. So I was involved in um, uh, mar Chinese martial arts for a long time. Oh, and my cool. teacher was from Hong Kong. And um, he, I remember I was asking him about some animal that was in the, one of the, the sets, the forms of Kung Fu. And mm -hmm. he, and he was like, oh, and it started this conversation about animals in China. And he was like, oh yeah, he, you know, he's from the, the markets in Hong Kong. He said, oh yeah, you can get whatever you want. Of you know, course. People have yeah. cages full of, full of animals. Yeah. And, 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 and if yeah. you want this rare animal that's in this, Right, That's, right. This kung fu form is named after, like, oh, no problem. What I was the get animal, do you remember? I think it might have been something like a civet. Yeah, like, yeah. Because he didn't have, he could, it was something like bear cat, and he couldn't. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a civet. He couldn't really um, translate that into mm -hmm. English. He was just like, uh, you know, and then he kind of dismissed it because he was like, wow. I can't translate that. So anyways, yeah. but that was, I was, I was like, the, the attitudes towards, so um, conservation are so different so in different Asia. I mean it's more like okay animals are here for our benefit and our use and unfortunately there's a lot of uses for them yeah in in China and Vietnam and places like that so that's like probably a good way to segue into talking about um, when this character that you started the book with that I just found mm -hmm. fascinating I, I don't know how you pronounce it I think it's Tam Ho uh, Tom Ho Tom Ho yes, pretty close which is like eighth child or something yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah it's his um, nickname so he's he's a very interesting character and um, based in Vietnam animal tra trapper yep um, could you just maybe give the audience a little bit of a taste of, of, a, of, taste of and, and, and a taste of Tom Ho. Yeah, just and a how did taste. you how did you meet and how did you meet yeah, totally. Uh, so Tom Ho goes back again to my days doing research as a master's student in Vietnam. I was trying to figure out how people use natural resources in this forest and if anyone hunted. And uh, I was asking everybody, like, do you know anyone who hunts? And in this one tiny little village, um, you know, we're talking like buildings made out of palm leaves and dirt roads and um, waters everywhere because I'm in a peat swamp. And uh, everyone started pointing down the street and was like, oh yeah, the pangolin hunter lives there, the pangolin hunter, the pangolin hunter. And uh, I was really excited to meet him because I hadn't met any professional hunters yet. And I was really nervous, like, is this guy even gonna talk to me? Mm -hmm. But he was just this exuberant, kind of wacky guy with like crazy black hair everywhere and, you know, like torn shirt, but 
super welcoming, like, yeah, yeah, come into my house. Like, I love education and students. I'll tell you all my secrets. Um, so I, I interviewed him for my research, and he told me all these ways he traps animals. You know, he makes his own homemade traps. He's figured out basically animal behavior and ecology. He knows what works for X species and what doesn't for Y. Um, and yeah, he made his living trapping animals and selling them to traders in a nearby city who then presumably would take them to even bigger cities, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, so when I, wanted, when I realized I wanted to write this book, I thought I need to find Tom Ho. And finding him was this whole thing. Um, I got my old host sister who I lived with when I studied abroad in Vietnam involved. She had to like print out a Polaroid I had of him and like send it to another guy who took it around because nobody down there uses the internet. Um, uh, okay. So we finally tracked down Tom Ho and uh, asked him if he'd be willing to be interviewed for this book. And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. So that was the step one. Um, I journeyed back to Vietnam, back to this peat swamp where I spent three months and never thought I'd ever go back to. Uh, and he, uh, he took me out, he and his wife, Lynn, on an early morning hunting expedition, which was just miserable. Mm-hmm. We're in this like rickety little boat, like going down these like black water canals. We're just surrounded by like swarms and swarms of mosquitoes. Every time we pass through like a bush, ants are just like raining down on us. There's leeches. Uh, and then getting out of the boat, it's like twice as hot. Like the humidity is oppressive. And I'm from Mississippi, so like <laughs> when I say it's hot, like I mean it's it's freaking hot. Um, but he showed me his traps and just the way this man moved through the forest. He was just so graceful and at home, at ease, and I'm like blundering around, like banging into trees. Luckily, we did not catch an animal on that day, but we saw like some scat from otters, and Mm -hmm. unfortunately, Tom Ho was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna come back and catch those otters. Um, But it was eye-opening. Yeah, and so his specialty is pangolins, correct? Yeah, I mean, he specializes in everything, except monkeys, because they creep him out because they look like little people, oh, he said. Okay. <laughs> um, but so he does have some boundaries. Yeah, that's his boundary. <laughs> um, but he, pangolins are what he's really after because they're the biggest payday for him. I mean, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll fetch, like, I don't remember the exact figure, but it's something like $100 a pound, and they can weigh a few pounds, so... That's that's big news for someone like Tom Ho. Have you figured out, you know, you know, two hundred dollars say he got for a particular animal? I mean, what would that be equivalent in U.S. dollars? Do you know? Oh, let me check. Hold on. Did you figure that? Let me out? just look up. <laughs> what you don't have the currency exchange yeah, rate yeah. right off the top of your Seriously. head? Seriously. Okay, so he can get like four hundred and fifty U.S. dollars for a pangolin, and. In this area, the average household earns about $1,000 per year. Wow. So with one animal, you're getting like half a year's salary. That would be like us. I don't, I'm not going to presume how much you make, but <laughs> imagine getting like a $50,000 payday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, who wouldn't hunt a pangolin <laughs> under those circumstances? Um, so yeah, talking to him, it was eye-opening not just for learning the techniques he uses, but also understanding where he's coming from and putting a face on the hunter. It's not just some like evil guy. It's, it's just a dude who has some kids and 
yeah. is making really obvious economic decisions. Yeah, and and one of the conservationists that you interviewed um, said, it, you know, some of these animals, it's like they have, you know, gold or heroin, yeah. you know, on their face walking around, right. and it's like, why wouldn't someone like this that's a great, go? That's and, a great quote. Yeah, um, it's like a know, rhino's walking around with. A big chunk of gold on its face, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, it's just such a target yeah. for um, anybody that's yeah. you know wants I mean, money or needs money. Yeah, know? it's. I think it's hard for people here to conceive of, but I mean, someone else told me they caught um, someone working in a national park in South Africa. They caught some poachers, and they were like, "Well, what are you doing?" And they're like, "Well, like we don't have any food." So we, we have to hunt this rhino. And they're like, well, what do you mean we, you don't have any food? And they're like, well, we're, we're eating grass. Wow. And I mean, come on. Like, of course they're going to try to hunt rhino. Like, yeah. you have to empathize with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a temptation. Um, so, I mean, I guess the question is, um, you know, what, in areas that are so economically depressed, where people are living on, you know, a dollar a day or less, Right. Like what what are what are the solutions? What do you do um, for somebody like Tom yeah. Ho uh, to to get them to stop chasing these animals around and catching them? I mean, that's like that's the big question, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you I don't mean, have yeah, all like, the answers. Yeah. Come on. It's like development aid, please. <laughs> like, um, yeah. I mean, until these communities are brought out of poverty, like it's not going to ever end. Yeah. So there needs to be kind of a carrot and a stick approach. We need protection because people are gonna try to hunt them. Yeah. Um, but we also need to actually figure out ways to help the communities yeah. with aid, whether that's through you know, ecotourism bringing dollars in or recruiting hunters to be guides or just building schools and jobs. Yeah. So that, so that, so this is kind of a lingering question I have about this, about conservation, and maybe you can answer it for me. But, you know, so development definitely like takes some of that incentive away from poaching for um, sure. when people have other opportunity for other types of jobs like construction or definitely agriculture. Definitely. But then that sort of like introduces a whole host of other problems because then you have, you know, habitat encroachment mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, development right. and, and sort of f habitat fragmentation and things like that. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I like, I kind of wonder what the solution is, the long-term solution. Here. I think increasingly we're going to see these kind of islands of nature that mm -hmm. are strictly protected national parks and mm -hmm. everything else is just going to be gone. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> like happy times. Um, I mean, that's the case in, in Africa, like... Yeah. There's so much development and human pressure. Yeah. Unless things are really there's boundaries put up. Yeah. Yeah. It it's gonna be lost. I mean, I guess as as eco economic development increases, like birth rates and things go down. So like maybe we'll maybe like maybe we'll reach some happy e equilibrium yeah. <laughs> where right. sort of you know we're not growing more as a population. God, I hope so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I then really you have. So. This crazy stuff you talk about in your book, where it's like you know people now because these animals are so rare that it's almost become a um, status symbol. Mm -hmm. If and you can have if you can have that served to you at dinner time. Yeah, I mean, I think that mindset in Vietnam and China, uh, 
yeah, that, that needs to change if these species are going to survive. Mm-hmm. But how to change that mindset is a million dollar question. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like um, demand reduction campaigns going on, but like hitting people over the head with like, these animals are dying. Like that message does not uh, sink in <laughs> or work <laughs> for these consumers. Yeah. Um, and one of the messages that people think does work um, is one of fear. So think about the ad campaigns for drunk driving here. Like if you drive drunk, you're going to kill a kid. Mm-hmm. Or if you do meth, you're going to be like horrible looking and no one's going to love you. <laughs> um, so that's, that's something that would probably resonate with these big guys eating wildlife. Like if you do rhino horn, like you're, you just suck and like you might get sick, which actually happens. Oh, okay. Um, but the problem is the people funding these campaigns are attached to NGOs and donors in the West. We want these like cushy, lovable, like save a rhino messages. Right. They don't want these, their money to be attached to these like brutal mm-hmm. campaigns. So that's an issue. Yeah. And um, uh, that's interesting. So yeah, the, the, I think those ad campaigns against smoking and things, yes, the, exactly. ones, the ones that have been effective are really gross like yeah, they'll show disgusting. lungs like, like with black with lungs. all black lungs so like maybe yeah. something with wild i mean those are those are the images that really i Resonate. find that affect me is when you For see sure. a rhino carcass with the you know yeah. horns chopped off yeah it's you know heartbreaking um yeah i mean again we're we're like approaching it from such a different viewpoint i think yeah. yeah, for us, that works. For consumers, it's got to be something like problems that's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to talk a, a bit about pangolins in particular because I just think they're Love so pangolins. adorable. They're awesome. <laughs> and strange. They're um, very weird. And foreign to um, yeah. people in North America. Definitely. Um, so what what is a pangolin and, and why yes. why... <laughs> are they sought after and and why are they so highly trafficked? Uh, So pangolins, also known as scaly anteaters, they are the world's only scaled mammal, Mm. Um, but they're not actually closely related to anteaters, even though they eat uh, insects like ants and termites. Um, They're actually more closely related to dogs and cats than to anteaters, so wow. Um, they can roll into really? balls. Yeah, they are. Isn't that crazy? Um, they're just not like that, really that had good. to sink in a yeah. minute, but I was like, what? They're just, they're just really cool. There's all these crazy facts about them. Like their tongue can be as long as their body. It's mm-hmm. like rooted kind of at the base of their stomach. Oh, wow. Um, they can roll into a ball to escape predators. Uh, they have super core strength. Like they can hang from a branch by their tail and then like go out 90 degrees like a gymnast or something. Uh-huh or 180 math again. Um, (laughs) They can go in a straight line there. Um, They're nocturnal, they're super shy, they're really passive. Like if you grab a pangolin, it's not gonna bite you. It's just gonna be like, oh my God. Um, And why they're wanted. So in Asia and also in cultures throughout Africa, they are sought after as traditional medicine materials. Yeah, um, where are they found? So, yeah, Asia. good question. Um, so there's eight species around the world. There's four in Africa, um, three in Asia, and one in India. Okay, so yes. just that part, not, yeah, in, not in the areas. new world. No, no, yeah, just Africa okay. and Asia. Okay. Um, but so their scales are used by traditional cultures around the world, wherever they're from, um, for various purposes. Um, 
and in Asia their meat is also considered a delicacy. And this is all fine, but the problem was wealth is going up in places like Vietnam and China. People can access things that they couldn't in the past, and as more people want these things, penguins are just being hoovered out of forests to satisfy that demand. And are they, I mean, if that wasn't happening, would they be fairly common animals? Yeah, I mean, you talk to people like Tom Ho or people who grew up in Vietnam and they say, yeah, like I used to see penguins crossing the road all the time and now that would just never happen. So it'd be something like, I mean, they kind of remind me a little bit of armadillos. Yeah, they, like, they look like that, like, a, like an armadillo Kind of like a pine cone armadillo. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> pine cone yeah, they definitely roll up into the little ball though, <laughs> and they have that little snout. But the, I mean, armadillos are fairly common animals, I think in oh yeah, Texas in, and in the south for in sure. The south. I don't know it's if like, they're where you grew up. Oh yeah, armadillo roadkill was okay. all over. Sadly. Okay. Oh okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they're they so they. I I wonder why they're um, sort of targeted as medicinal though. You know, I think just because they look weird, to yeah, be honest. It's yeah. like they, they look conspicuous, so therefore they have to have some kind of intrinsic power. Yeah. Um, you know, and like traditional Chinese medicine draws on ingredients from hundreds of animals, so penguins are no exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I know a bit about Chinese medicine. There's also this idea that things that look like something mm. will affect that part of the body in some way. Right. Like, um, they, you know, think that ginseng looks like, mm -hmm. you know, a spleen or something. And so then it would affect right. the spleen. Right. So maybe there's some connection there's some there. of that, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know about pangolins because they are used for, for example, to help mothers lactate. I don't really think they look like a boob, but, <laughs> you know, um, who knows? No, I don't. And, I, I mean, don't their scales are just keratin, like fingernails, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like so many of these things, rhino yeah. horn, it's, it's, it's literally just, keratin, just um, guys. Yeah. fingernails. Yeah, uh, but um, I don't know. Someone put it to me like it's almost like convincing someone who's religious, though, that there is mm -hmm. no God or mm -hmm. higher power. It's more of a true believer thing with mm -hmm. medicine, Chinese medicine, than it is like evidence, science. Yeah. yeah. So it's so. I'm going to go way out uh, on a tangent here, but um, in you know studying different um, sort of areas of philosophy and, and science and things like that. So the interesting with like traditional Chinese culture is that they never fully separated this idea of sort of like psychology from science, like psycho like the mind from the mm -hmm. body, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, for sure. So there's this there's this connection, this overlap between. Um, that if you think something it's you know will will help you it sort of does there's no mm -hmm. there's no random controlled uh right, right. Tri double blind placebo right. it's like if placebo like if pl the placebo works then that's oh yeah. it worked right so there's not they don't have this like separate they never had the separation of science right. they, they adopted that from the west but then they but they never developed them that for themselves so i almost wonder if that's where this right. thinking is sort Definitely. of coming from and I mean, then you get into all kinds of gnarly, interesting things like sometimes it does work because the placebo effect can be so strong. Yeah. So, 
yeah, if you take rhino horn and you feel like your hangover is cured, um, <laughs> you know, who's to say it doesn't work? Yeah, like, right. Rhino is a powerful organ. Right. But, they, but they've never found any, you know, sort of physical mechanism for, for how these things would right. work. Right. Like, um, I, don't, I don't remember seeing any... Uh, I'd have to check my book, but... <laughs> um, no control trials for pangolins. People have tried it on rhino horn, with rhino horn a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, funny enough, the Western scientists who have tried it have found no effect, whereas the Chinese scientists, of course, have found effects. Um, but there's all kinds of issues with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned in the book, you know, some there are some traditional Chinese medicines that that you know, once they were tested, they did actually. Yeah, have, bear bile is so, a great example of that. Bear bile actually works. Oh, uh, what is it? Uh, how's how's that? Um, <laughs> it's hold on, give me a second. No worries. Okay, ursodeoxycholic acid is the active ingredient in bear bile, and we actually have it too. All mammals make it. Uh-huh. Um, and the thing about it in bears is there's a lot of it in okay. their bile, and that's because bears hibernate. And it seems like this acid, what it does is it prevents cell death. Um, and that's why bears don't come out of their dens in the spring, like completely emaciated and dying. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so um, there's researchers here in the US who have done all kinds of tests on it, and it, it does seem to have these um, I hate to word, use the word miraculous, but it has some really profound effects. Yeah. The thing is, though, we can make that acid, and we, we can uh, get it from, for example, cows that have been slaughtered, and purify it and deliver it in like nice pill form. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this thought that something about coming from the animal, it has this intrinsic power mm-hmm. and purity. So users in China don't necessarily want it in this pill form from a company. They want it from the source, the animal. Yeah, it sort of gets back to that idea of, um, you know, sort of pro, pre-science. Like there's mm-hmm. this essential, yes. essential quality of, of, exactly. of an ingredient. And if you remove that from where, you know, it came from, then it's like, oh, it doesn't have that. Exactly, sort of exactly. I mean, property anymore. For sure. Um, like, hardcore rhino horn users will actually say, like, no, I want it from a wild rhino. I don't want it from a farmed rhino. I don't want it from a lab in Seattle. There's one that's actually trying to make rhino horn. I want it from the animal because that's the wild animal and I want that animal's power. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's, it's almost magical. Like, yeah, you know, like exactly. Sp- like, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's really hard to that's really hard. It's to hard come, to combat. combat right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're running uh, low on time, but um, I, I guess I just would, you know, my final question to you, I guess, would be, you know, who should read this book? Who? Everyone who, should read this book, <laughs> of course. Um, I, I, but who? Who, yeah. who do you think is going to be like? Who? Who did you write it for? I wrote it for people who aren't like tree-hugging animal rights activists. Like, those people are already converted. They, mm-hmm. they get it. Uh, I wrote it for people who don't know that this is an issue necessarily or have questions about it, who are curious about the world, who think the world might be a lesser place without wildlife, but, you know, they're not necessarily writing checks to WWF. Um, and I hope that this book 
kind of pushes them in that direction and makes people more aware that this is happening, that things can be done to stop it. But without doing those things, we're going to lose a lot more wildlife. Great. And yeah, and it's, um, it's so great to have all this information in like such a entertaining package. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my intention. It's like, here's the info, do with it what you will. I hope yeah. people are moved to, you know, maybe change their lifestyles or write a check or tell others about it. But. And we're grateful to you for checking through the swamp. <laughs> and braving Thanks. the mosquitoes yeah. and, 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 you know, going into some pretty hairy situations, as you can read about in the book. To, My pleasure. To sort of investigate this and, yes. and, and get a real, because that's what I, I, I feel like we haven't seen that, a real on the ground investigative approach to this yeah. uh, issue. And, it's, and it's, it's fantastic. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And um, we'll try to include a link uh, to a website where you can purchase the book uh, awesome. in the show notes for this inaugural episode Woo! <laughs> and we're done and Sweet. everybody have a great day Bye. Bye. well that's it for this show we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com also don't forget you can support future episodes by becoming a member on patreon head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info the Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.